Good morning, everyone. I hope this Sunday finds you well, um, particularly thinking of those of you who are uh, unable to join us on in person on Sunday mornings, praying for you. Uh, please be reaching out to myself or to members of the SLT in ways that we can be supporting you. I've really enjoyed getting out with people and kind of recommencing my coffee and lunch schedule and being able to just connect and touch base with people, pray with people. So if that's something that you're interested in doing, we can totally do that in a physically distant fashion while being socially connected. You can just email me at jeff at nelsoncovenant.com and I will make that a priority. I know it's really important to process with people what God has been doing through this time and the challenges that people are facing. And I want to make sure that people understand that's a huge priority for me. And I carve out time specifically in my week to do that. So please uh, don't hesitate to reach out because that's something I know a lot of people are um, would benefit from during this time. Okay, we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking at Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. This is the message to the church in Philadelphia. Revelation 3, verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, I think to best understand this passage, we need to start in the kind of in the middle and build out because we learn a few things from verses eight and nine that really help us to understand the situation and the context that this church finds itself in. So in verses eight and nine, we read Jesus saying, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those of you, sorry, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So we learn a few things about the church in Philadelphia just in these two verses. Number one, they are small, and at least from a cultural perspective, they're not very influential. Um, when Jesus says they have little strength, he literally is saying you have kind of um, micro uh, dynamics, micro power. Um, 
And he's not speaking of the spiritual strength that they have in him. He's acknowledging that they are a small, socially and culturally fairly irre- uh, irrelevant um, church. They, they're, they're not making waves in the surrounding city. And they don't have a lot of resources. But they are faithful, right? And he says, you've kept my word and I've not denied my name. So they are a godly, sincere, passionate, but tiny <laughs> church with micro power as it relates to influencing the city around them. They've also been shut out from the local synagogue. So some Jewish believers that became Christians were still able to engage and be a part of local synagogues. Here the, the synagogue says, no, by claiming Jesus as the Messiah, we excommunicate you from that synagogue. And that has all kinds of social and economic repercussions. So this is also a church where many of its members have experienced being shut out and isolated so they're not, so they're kind of being, um, so they have very, very little power and influence within the broader culture, and they're being shut out and abandoned by, um, by kind of those in the synagogue who might have been able to offer some kind of care and support to them. So they're very, they're feeling very, very isolated despite the fact that they're living in a relatively large city. Now, Another thing that the text doesn't make explicit, but it's pretty important for us to understand the passage, is that Philadelphia is situated in um, Lydia along the Hermas River Valley. It's about 38 miles southeast of Sardis, which we looked at last week. And it kind of backed, the city backed onto some volcanic cliffs, which made the land around really, really rich and fertile from volcanic residue. But it also made Philadelphia a very, very dangerous place to live because there were very consistent earthquakes. And because of its location, the city was in continual danger of earthquakes. And according to one historian, Strabo, they experienced shocks uh, every day. Now, we're not sure if that's hyperbolic, but um, even, if it, even if it is, this was a place where you were constantly being reminded that you were in a precarious living environment. There were forces around you that were constantly threatening you. And as a result, many of the inhabitants chose to live in huts outside the city in open country. And the inhabitants of Philadelphia were always ready to rush out of the city at a moment's notice. So we have this little church living in a pretty hostile environment, not just socially and religiously, but also geographically. So there are serious threats to safety and comfort all around. And when you're in a a situation where you look out the window and there are just very plain, serious threats across a number of dimensions, it's very tempting to move into a kind of survival mode as an individual. And and I think we see a little bit of evidence that that's what's happening here as a church, right? And I think that's something we can relate to. We are a pretty small church. We have kind of micro dynamis. We have small power. We're not a mover and shaker on the social or cultural scene here in Nelson. 
we don't have a ton of social or cultural or political clout. Um, we've been shut out from the major cultural gatekeepers. There are forces outside of us that threaten our well-being, right? We're right in the middle of a pandemic where any day or week there could be a spike and life could change really, really rapidly for the worse. It doesn't take much for us to imagine how tempting it would be to huddle up and to keep our vision as a church very, very small and manageable. And I guess we could maybe say justifiably self-serving and safe, right? We just kind of begin to think to ourselves, maybe it's just best to shelter in place like this. Stay alive, stay surviving, take it one day at a time. So to a church in this situation, what kind of apocalyptic disclosure does Jesus give them? Right? Remember, the word apocalypse means a revealing. Jesus reveals something about himself and what he wants for this church in this message. Let's find out what it is. Verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, Philadelphia was a temple warden city, which means um, they were able to, they had a special role in um, propping up and advancing the imperial cult. They gave the emperor the title the son of the Holy One. And so when Jesus reveals himself as he who is holy, who is true, right right away, like he's been doing in all these messages, Jesus confronts the culture's deceitful meta-narrative where they're saying, this is the way you see the world. This is what you, how you understand authority. This is what life is all about. This is to whom you should be allied. Jesus comes along and says, no. You owe me your allegiance. I am the Lord. I am the King. I am the Holy One. I am the true one who reality is meant to be organized around. He says that he holds the key of David. Um, Christ is, uh, I'm going to draw from a commentary here because there's a good uh, succinct summation of what this means. The commentator says, Christ is next described as having the key of David, which is a metaphorical expression indicating complete control over the royal household. Specifically, in view of what comes next in the passage, it means the undisputed authority to admit or to exclude from the New Jerusalem, which, as we find out in the later chapters of Revelation, is our eternal home. Not heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth centered around a new city, the new Jerusalem. And Jesus says, I have the key to that city. I am the one who can admit and to exclude from that place. So there's two things we need to kind of hear in there. The first is obviously Jesus is making a remarkable claim that relates to salvation. He's saying, I am the one who holds the key. There's one key, I hold it, no one else holds it. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. And the key is also a picture of authority, right? If you think about what a key allows you to do, it gives you the authority to access certain areas that wouldn't normally be accessible to you. And so to hold a key is to hold power, and to hold the key of David 
is a metaphorical way of saying Jesus has the power to open, uh, in a sense, the door that no one else can open. And if Jesus holds the key to open that door, then as we learn in chapter 1, he even holds the keys to death and Hades. There are no doors that he cannot open. And what Jesus decides to shut, no one can open. So we're seeing here a picture of um, salvation and also the authority that Jesus now carries as Lord of heaven and earth, of things seen and unseen. Now, doors for all of us can also and are often used as a metaphorical symbol for opportunities, right? Closed or locked doors signify being cut off from those opportunities. And that's important to think about as it relates to this message, because closed doors, you know, the, the older I get, the more interactions I have with people for whom closed doors have come to define their lives. We, we tend to start life, uh, you know, all things being equal, if we have a, a relatively healthy uh, context for the first decade of our life, we tend to see life through the through an, um, a, view, a, a worldview of open doors. There's lots of opportunities around us, opportunities for growth and development and fun and adventure and hope and expectation. And then as we move through life, some, many, all of those doors can get closed. Maybe not all at once, but that relationship that you were absolutely positive was going to end in marriage, it doesn't work out. That door closes. Maybe that job, that door, that door closes on that job or that promotion. Maybe there was a relationship that you were just presumed would endure for your lifetime. And then along comes a tragic death and loss and that door closes. Maybe there's a past mistake that you've made or something that has been done to you. And you feel like that the door of future prospects have closed as a result of that mistake or that wounding or that abuse. And what happens, I think, is if you experience enough of these closed doors, it really can begin to breed a kind of resignation. You begin to feel powerless to affect any meaningful change. You feel like progress is something for other people, but you kind of see the pattern in your life, and it's just false hope followed by closed doors. And then you, you can become very tempted into adopting a way of thinking and um, a way of seeing yourself, a way of seeing your life, a way of seeing God and how God operates in your life in such a way that you begin to believe that closed doors are just going to become the defining feature of your life. And if this happens to you, as a believer, or if it if that um, resignation, that spirit of resignation, and just that that sense of powerlessness and hopelessness sets uh, sets itself within a church community, it can breed a kind of spiritual resignation. 
that yes, you're saved and you're loved by the grace of God. It's not that you've abandoned your faith, but the way the script is going to play out for you, you anticipate it just being sort of an ever-increasing succession of hardships and closed doors and shut down opportunities one closed door after another and so it's not that you even necessarily turn your back on god but somewhere inside you you just stop expecting good things you stop asking and praying and pursuing god's best you hesitate to hope that god will use you in powerful ways that god will do powerful things in your life and so kind of like a turtle, you retreat into your shell so that you can focus on safety and self-preservation. And if that's you this morning, then you need to hear and you need to feel this revelation from Jesus deep in your bones. He says in verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he shuts, no one, what he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. To this small, politically and culturally insignificant church, to this community who was shut out, but had still been faithful, Jesus reveals that he has placed before them an open door. That is such good news. See, in the New Testament, the theme of an open door is repeatedly used to underscore an opportunity to advance the gospel, to advance the kingdom of God, to be a part of the mission of God and bringing the hope and love and forgiveness and grace of Jesus into the marketplace of ideas, into our relationships and our family, our society, in Acts 14, 27, it says, On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, it says, uh, Paul writes, Because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, Paul writes again, Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me. And in Colossians 4.3, we read, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to this church? and maybe to you, and maybe to us through it. Jesus is acknowledging and saying, I see that you're small. I see that you have micro power. I acknowledge that you're insignificant by worldly standards. And maybe as a result, you've become very comfortable, comfortable with the idea that all I want for you, all I see for you is just mere faithfulness. I know you're tempted to retreat and to hunker down, and to protect yourself. But as my church, I want you to hear me say, no. The door 
of opportunity is open. This is not the time to play it safe. Jesus wants this church to know, you may be small, but in me, small does not equal powerless. Small does not equal unimportant. Small does not equal purposeless. And Jesus is saying, I don't care how many people around you are shutting you out and closing doors. Because you need to understand you serve the one who holds the keys to eternal life. And if I am for you, who can possibly stand against you? I mean, wow, what a revelation. And then it's followed by a succession of promises. He says to this church, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, they are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jesus says, I'm going to vindicate you in the presence of your enemies. I will bring honor to your name. In verse 10, he says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world. There's this gathering storm, and Jesus says, it's going to affect those around you. I will protect you from it. And then in verse 12, to the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and I will also write on them my new name. Now, what's going on here about this pillar? Why would that be important? Why would that be exciting? Why would that uh, be received as good news to anybody, let alone this church? Well, in some cities, when a person had served the state and the empire well, and when that person had left behind a noble record, the memorial given was to erect a pillar in one of the temples with that person's name inscribed upon it. And so a pillar is a way to publicly honor someone's name and thereby grant them, in the name of the empire, a legacy. And from Rome's perspective, it would have been an eternal legacy because they would have assumed the Roman Empire is going to last forever and this pillar is going to be standing here forever. Of course, it isn't. But see, Jesus is offering an eternal legacy to those who move through that open door. Today we have people tearing down statues, tearing down monuments, and one of the lessons we learn from that is that no worldly monument lasts. Whether they are worn down by time and decay or thrust down by the fires of revolution and violence, all pillars of earthly fame and praise and honor fall, except those that will reside in the eternal city to come, the new Jerusalem. And so Jesus is saying to this church, he says, I will give you an eternal memorial of public record that will endure forever for those who move through the door that I have opened. So again, what is that door? What is the open door before us? Well, the one thing I don't want us to miss is that Jesus himself is the door. That Jesus, as the holder of the key to the city of David, is the one who holds salvation. The one who, lo who alone can deliver us from the power and penalty of sin. Put his spirit within us, forgive us, cleanse us, set us on a new path, and 
propel us into a new mission with a new identity. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. Whoever enters through me will be saved. And so at the very most most foundational, basic level of this passage, I want us to address the question, have you moved through the door of Christ? Have you stepped out of your self-centeredness and said, Jesus, I want to build a life centered on you. I see that you are the Holy One and you are the true one. Have you put your faith in him? Have you given him the keys to your life, right? Jesus says, I hold the key to the house of David. But in a sense, God gives us the choice. He says, you have the key to your own heart, to your own throne. Will you give it to Jesus? Because remember, keys are about authority. It's about um, allowing access to something. And when we give the keys of our life to Jesus, what we're saying is, I give you authority. And think about the word authority, authority. You're saying, Jesus, I give you permission to author my life going forward. Up to this point, I've been the author. I've been trying to write the script. I've been trying to be in control. I think I know what's best. And my story is one of um, brokenness and destruction and mess and unfulfilled um, hopes and dreams. I don't know how to write my own script. Jesus, I want you to be the author. I give you the keys to my life. Jesus is the door, and we need to walk through him. But for those who have done that, like I talked about earlier, the New Testament says, for those who are saved and now in Christ, the open door represents mission. The open door represents an opportunity to go out into the world, not be in retreat mode, We move into the mission of God, even when the environment around us seems hostile, when it looks from our perspective like maybe there's no point, or there's too many threats, or no one's going to listen, or it's not going to matter. Jesus says, I've put before you an open door. He's gone ahead of us. The Spirit is at work in the world, convicting people of sin. The Spirit is putting um, stones in people's shoes, especially now during this pandemic, where they're saying, is this all there is? What, what, what do I think about the ultimate purpose of life? Is there a life after death? Is, is, why are all these things happening? People's foundations have been shaken. And Jesus says, I have put before you an open door. I want you to go and bear witness to the gospel, to the good news that in Jesus, we can have our sins forgiven, our lives redeemed, our future secured in hope and glory, not through religious striving, but because of God's grace received by faith. We can be reconnected to the source of life. We can have reconciliation between ourselves and God and us and other people. God can begin to lead us into the life that is truly life, one that will extend forever. We're called to advance that message. That's a big message. It's a big mission. Where do we start? How do you and I, how do we as a start, as a church, start and say, yes, I want to do that. I'm scared. I feel like I have micro power, even just myself as an individual, micro influence. Where can I start? Daryl Johnson has really, really good counsel for us. In addressing the question, how do we walk through the open door of mission God has put before us? He says, I suggest 
as a minimal response to what Jesus is saying to the whole church through his message to the church in Philadelphia. This, that we pray for 10 people who do not yet know the Jesus who holds the keys. 10 people whom we want to see made pillars in the temple of the living God. And we ask Jesus to open the door. I know it's summer. Sun's out. There's a sense of relaxation as we move into another phase of reopening and life is sort of feeling like it's getting back to normal and there's so much relief that comes from that. But for the rest of the summer, it's about six weeks, for the rest of July and August, will you join me in that assignment? Like not at the level of intention, but to actually execute it, to make a list of 10 people in your life who do not know Christ. And for the rest of the summer, pray for them daily. And if you don't know what to pray for, where you get stuck, just keep coming back to this theme of open door. God, would you open a door for this person to see you? May this person see, may you reveal yourself to them that you are the true and the living one. Maybe you pray through how Jesus reveals himself in these different letters to different churches and say, would you reveal yourself to this person and give me an open door, God. Give me an open door in their life to love them, to serve them, to bless them, to gently and wisely, um, as you lead me, to share your truth and your goodness with them. Open a door for me to serve them. Open a door for me to connect with them and to listen to them and to hear their story. I'm going to do that for the rest of the summer. I'm going to make my list this afternoon. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pray for 10 people daily who do not know Christ. I'm not going to be legalistic about it. If I forget a day, okay, get back on track. But my ambition is to pray daily for those 10 people and that Christ would open a door for me to love and to serve them so that they would see how good Jesus is. Now is not the time to retreat. Now is not the time to focus on self-preservation. Now is not the time to slink into our perceived smallness as a church. Jesus has placed before us an open door. And good news, it is a door that no one can shut. And so let's move through it and gain an eternal legacy. So as you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church, may you see the open doors before you. And may you move through the door of Jesus and his mission. And may we discover in the process that though we are small, God can do big things through us as a church. God bless. Have a great week.